when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we have a bank dork treat for everyone, as we are joined by author and historian Eric Rauschway to talk about his most recent book, The Moneymakers, and how FDR getting our currency off the gold standard is the gold standard of economic policy. Meanwhile, a bill that would allow the victims of terrorism to sue the states that sponsor such acts has passed the House, and it's on the way to the president's desk, where it is sure to be vetoed. However, this bill has such broad and bipartisan support that we may be on the verge of a first-ever congressional override of an Obama veto. How did the White House end up here? We'll lay it out for you. Finally, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has levied a huge fine on Wells Fargo after it was revealed that thousands of Wells Fargo employees were routinely and purposefully charging their customers scads of bogus fees. It was a dumb and venal scam that we're all glad was caught by the CFPB. But can a hefty fine really cure a diseased corporate culture? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jessica Schulberg, and Lauren Weber. We'll have all of that, but first, let us briefly stick a hand into our basket of deplorables. Your week in 2016-ishness begins right now. Hey, guys, welcome back. We've got a podcast for you. This is So That Happened, your week of political nonsense. I'm Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. Not Meet the Press, but Eat the Press. I understand what's <laughs> confusing some people, and I apologize for my poor diction at times. Uh, we have a really great show for you today. Uh, in order to get to it, we've got to get through a segment on the fucking election. So here to begin talking about <laughs> the election. Summing we, up all our feelings. We have yeah. we have Zach Carter. Woo! Let's talk about this fucking shit. Feigning excitement. <laughs> and uh, our good friend Lauren Weber is you also know, here. I'm bringing a tisket, a tasket, and a deplorable's basket. Yeah, that's where we're going oh. with this. Oh. That's where we're God. It's probably how I would have introduced this segment, so thank you for sparing me that indignity. Um, yeah, so uh, this weekend was full up of nonsense, um, beginning with um, Hillary Clinton uh, saying what I would have thought to have been one of the least controversial things she's ever said, which is to say that a goodly portion. She said half, and maybe that was too much, but half of Donald Trump's support belong in a basket of deplorables, while the other half belong to a group of people who have been so economically deprived over this period of time they no longer believe that anything in the country is working for them, and those people deserve empathy, but the whole white nationalist nonsense movement does not. I was a bit thunderstruck by how suddenly this became controversial. It literally is one of the least controversial things I've ever heard her say. This is a woman who said, I gave speeches at Goldman Sachs because of (laughs) 9-11. <laughs> Which is a whole nother issue for another day. Like, that would have been the thing that if I were 
uh, in the news, I would have said, come on, guys, that's fucking crazy. But instead, what's crazy is apparently what the same media has been reporting about for the better half part of a year and a half. Right. Am I nuts here? I mean, look, it's interesting to me that a few weeks ago, this was a there was a debate between people on Twitter who are not quite media elites, but who do fine about whether Donald Trump's support <laughs> was due 100% due to only racism or whether it was due to a mixture of both racism and economic anxiety. And there was a significant faction of Hillary Clinton's supporters, including Matt Iglesias, most prominent among them at Vox, saying it was 100% racism. Nothing but race explains Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton is basically saying Matt was half wrong. She's she is she is saying actually everybody else who was saying I ah, know I think there's an economic component of this they're, they're about they're about half right right only half of the Trump campaign is is full of these uh, deplorables and look let's not pretend that there isn't a white nationalist movement out there that's behind Donald Trump we see the freaking frog memes on Twitter. Okay, there's a and they whole... get really angry when you point out that the frog meme is a, a sort of a racist byword. But, I really like yeah. this theory that Hillary Clinton said this to disprove some mid-level reporters on Twitter. <laughs> I really, I really, I really like that. That's that's why she decided to say well, this. Well, I mean, one of the one of it's become uninteresting to me because I made up my <laughs> mind about this like six months ago. Um, but it's there, there is still this debate about what is responsible for the rise of Donald Trump and his popularity because he's such a, a unique and malevolent force in in American politics. Um, and so that's something that people still debate. And so what Hillary Clinton was putting out there was basically like, well, yeah, it's kind of both. She was saying something that pretty much everybody in the space who has looked at this and analyzed it has said some version of, if not stronger, um, than, than the terms that she used. Now, it is, I think, problematic to refer to people as, like, basically irredeemable. I think that is, is in its she own did, way a sort deplorable of... Deplorable is not irredeemable. It's, it, it's, it's... I am deplorable a lot of the I time. Think, I think it, it was a thing that she just could have avoided, though. Like, did we need to say this and then create this media firestorm? Like, did we need to take away the distraction we from never, Donald Trump's... I don't think we ever need Nightmares. To... Like, you know, we could have just let him continue to slide instead of distracting ourselves with this. I don't think there's ever the need to create a media firestorm. I think that often media firestorms crop up where you least expect it. Okay. Part of, you know, one of the central parts that made this a media firestorm is that the people doing all of the reporting of her remarks omitted the second part of what Zach yeah. is saying. That's true. And that is not what was heard. It, it makes you wonder that if she had led with the other in the first place, maybe this wouldn't have gotten reported as such. But, you know, know. it I, is I, what it is. I think there's a difference between calling something deplorable and, and saying someone belongs in a basket of deplorables. It suggests <laughs> that you are no longer like this thing with agency and emotions that can change over time and learn. It suggests that you're just kind of one of the bad people and needs to be set aside in your own little basket. Um, and I, I do think there is something about there's the something demeaning that, about that. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that does get people's uh, raise people's hackles. But look, it's also the case that there are a lot of like really hardline white nationalists behind <laughs> Donald Trump. Okay, and and there's got to be a way to to denounce that and and criticize that and describe that in in very unappealing terms. You know, because it's pretty bad and it's becoming mainstreamed through the. I mean, you can see it with the whole term alt right is now a thing, whereas before it was just called white nationalism or yeah, neo-Nazism. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Right. And, and, you know, I want to point out that the same day that Hillary Clinton said this, there was an alt-right neo-Nazi 
press conference in which they basically said, yeah, we're looking to establish a, you know, white nationalist ethno state. And I have to Lovely. assume that they meant here in America, yeah. not some undiscovered country. So that is out Maybe there. Maybe it's a Bitcoin country. And, we and, can only and, hope. And even after the fact, <laughs> Trump was nodding at them saying, I ah, see you, see you. Don't worry. Keep up the good work. But you know what raises my hackles about it? to be honest with you, is just the media kind of abandoning the story they've been telling and sensationalizing maybe a little, perhaps, over the course of a year and a half. The New York Times put out a soundtrack of Donald Trump supporters at rallies in which they build as like the raw and uncensored real views of Donald Trump supporters. And it wasn't that what they didn't capture on tape was, yeah, you know, my plant closed. Okay, that's not what they were talking about. This is what this is the kind of the way the media's treated this. And I start to question whether they have the stomach for the confrontation they've initiated. And I think back to the fact that the media didn't care that much about it when Donald Trump was stoking anti-Mexican resentment or when he was stoking... Uh, Banning all Muslims right. from the country. <laughs> like the first time the media finally said, hey, that's beyond the pale was when Donald Trump went after John McCain, a member of the elite political class. And really what's turned them onto it is the fact that Donald Trump now regularly turns his audiences against reporters, and reporters now feel threatened with violence. Katie Turr uh, wrote a, an essay for Mary Claire magazine about what it's like to have you know come from England and abandoned her boyfriend and to follow Trump on the road. And the big, the part of the story that everyone in the media picked up on was the fact that uh, Trump called her out at a rally, turned the audience against her, and the Secret Service took the extraordinary step of actually escorting her out of that venue in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. For her safety, right? For her safety. Yes. That's what everyone was like, oh, everyone was like, oh, Katie Turr, I can't believe this happened to you. Oh, I can't believe you're so brave. And you know what? I'm not here to knock Katie Turr. She is brave and she's done a good job on the campaign trail. But the media was like all about this basket of deplorables when it's turned on one of their own. Um, and they actually gave Hillary Clinton a lot of props for the speech she gave in Reno, Nevada. Which they did. Was Entirely focused on the basket of deplorables. She just didn't call it a basket of deplorables. Yes, so well, it's it also, was... I mean, it's also just such like a hypocritical. I mean, this doesn't, this sticks to Hillary Clinton, and yet Donald Trump says things that are so beyond the pale every five seconds that nothing, sure. nothing matters. But, you know, I, I, I am sort of wondering if what's happening here, if, if we're missing while all this is going on, that particularly people who are sort of more on the liberal end of the spectrum, like myself, you, you see, uh, you see Donald Trump all over here basically running a fascist campaign that terrifies right-thinking people, okay? Um, and Conservative Hillary, and liberal people, right, rational right. people, and both sides, yeah. And, it terrifies and, a lot of people. And Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, is a person who went to Donald Trump's wedding, who vacations with Henry Kissinger, uh, who is now touting the endorsement of Mike Morrell, who is an apologist for the CIA's torture program under Bush and Cheney. Um, are we missing, you know, while while we're talking about the awful ethno-nationalism of the Donald Trump campaign, which is very real, are we missing a movement in in a more militaristic direction that that the Clinton campaign is making uh, in order to in order to highlight its its uh, ability to 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 take Republican support away from Donald Trump? That seems to have been her post-convention plan for a long period of time to attempt to peel off Republican support. And what's interesting about that is that during this period of time, the polls have, 
tightened. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna doomsay about it. But no, but they've gotten closer. They've I mean. gotten closer, and I think that was probably a strategic error. And I think a lot of liberals noticed that she was shifting to something that seemed a lot more militaristic. And yeah, it can become kind of strange to compare and contrast these two candidacies when you have one who's been sort of overtly authoritarian and fascist, and the other one is just sort of more of this kind of like, well, soft power, and we'll do it to other people, not to our fellow countrymen. It's... It's it, it you know I, I feel I feel I, I I can I'm sympathetic to your point of view on that Zach. I love that when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we're able to. Everyone, rest assured, me and Zach are cool. <laughs> glad glad to hear it, guys. Glad yeah. to hear it. we're having this bro moment right now. The, the rest of the country uh, maybe. <laughs> Do you yeah. want to like get a drink after this? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. I'm pretty sure people weren't sleeping at night thinking it was not okay. Right. Really... Okay. Well, uh, we have a really good show uh, coming up, so please stick around. Uh, we are going to be right back. Welcome back. Wells Fargo, the bank most prominently known for being a song in The Music Man, has been making a lot of news lately. A few weeks ago, they put out an ad campaign talking about how their great student loans could help rock musicians become botanists, get real careers. And I couldn't help but wonder if maybe like their contributions to the financial crash had made it more logical to bootstrap your way to a career with a bass guitar than to... I got to I gotta say that one I took a little personally. Of course uh, you did. As a former rock musician who found a real career, I did not actually need a loan to do that. Exactly. I needed a job. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the best was yet to come in the world of Wells Fargo uh, because your friends at the, our friends, America's friends at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has dinged them up for a massive and really kind of dickish scam that their employees were pulling. So to explain it, let's turn to Zach Carter. Zach, talk to me about sandbagging. So this is an amazing scandal, as bank scandals go, because even though the actual dollar amount of the fraud here alleged fraud, they've settled without uh, acknowledging wrongdoing, so it's still alleged. But we do know... That Wells Fargo employees, 5,300 of them who have since been fired from Wells Fargo, created literally millions of fake accounts for their own customers in order for these sales people, the retail sales people working at you know Wells Fargo branches, uh, to meet internal sales goals. So let's say you had a checking account. Oh, look, you have a credit card that's opened. Okay, now you have fees that are associated with this credit card and you're being charged these fees. So ultimately, these millions of accounts resulted in only about $2.5 million in charges to Wells Fargo customers. But it is just such an obvious, scummy thing to do. And it was happening on a massive, massive scale. It's the venality of it that really staggers me. You're right. It didn't didn't cost consumers a, a ton of money, although... God knows you wake up one day and find out that you've been being charged fees for a credit card you never opened. 
that doesn't feel good. And you feel, I, I do feel and like you get nickel and dime by banks enough. You try, you try like, you know, let, let's say you actually did like incur an overdraft fee on your checking account or something. And you want to get that reversed because like you actually did screw up, but you think it's kind of ridiculous that they've charged you this many overdraft fees or something. Right. Good luck. Okay. You go into the bank and say, Hey, I never even opened that account. <laughs> I mean, have a, have a good time with a customer service rep on that one, right? Yeah, that's that's plain, plainly ridiculous. And this is being done at a staggering scale. 5,300 employees were all sort of in on this together. Was this a coordinated thing they were all doing with each other? It was not or coordinated. Or was it, was it kind of just like one of those things that, where the company policies incentivize this kind of activity and enough people took the took the hit and started doing it. You have put your finger on exactly what happened. Ah, and, great. And, and so, you know, 5,300 people over the course of five years suggests that maybe there's something going wrong in the management structure. That there's, there's a, we have a, a, a clear cultural problem here at Wells Fargo where all of our employees are creating fake, fake accounts over and over again, uh, which is illegal. Five years of this suggests that somebody in management knew what was going wrong because they were firing people over it. And it was happening over and over and over again. So to my mind, there are a couple of there are a couple of lessons here. One, Wells Fargo, which is like sort of enjoyed this bizarre reputation as one of the like best of the of the big banks. You know, Goldman Sachs is bad because of the Abacus scandal that happened in 2008, right. where yeah. they were defrauding their own you know investment <laughs> banking clients, sure. uh, their own securities clients. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is a bad bank because look at all the you know 12 dozen scandals they've had in commodities markets, energy markets, what what have you, mortgage markets. Wells Fargo is supposed to be like one of the cleaner big banks. I think that just shows that this has all been a big marketing scam, essentially from from Wells Fargo. And I also think you know the CFPB did their job here, and Wells Fargo is going to yeah. pay 185 million dollars to to clear this out. Uh, but there should be a criminal investigation into this. This this is the sort of thing that I mean they, they've discussed their retail sales on you know, to investors many times, uh, and those retail sales numbers were not accurate because they're they were, padded by the scam. Exactly. Yeah. So so they they have misled investors on something that you know look we're talking two and a half million dollars, but but the numbers for accounts you know if you're telling investors hey we've opened two million accounts that don't actually exist that suggests that those accounts are going two million accounts could be has a potential profit margin that's much larger than the fraud on on people who lost two and a half million dollars on, yeah. on those accounts. Yeah. So they, they've misled investors uh, and they did it through through, uh, you know, I think at best uh, what, what looks to me like negligence. Um, and you can bring criminal prosecutions against executives for negligence. So there should be a criminal inquiry opened into this bank. Um, it probably will not happen because the Obama administration just doesn't prosecute big bankers. They've got no stomach for it at all. And it's disturbing that we get down to this kind of petty level where this is like really kind of just like a gross thing that's been consequential for like ordinary people. We're not talking about the kind of like scams that wiped out big uh, institutional investors. We're talking about the kind of nickel and diming of ordinary people. These are the people that you would, you, you'd think the, the, the Obama administration would want to protect Right, right. The administration has been pretty good, actually, about consumer issues and finance. Um, they, they haven't been so great on consumer issues with mortgages, uh, but on, on basically yeah. everything else, uh, you know, the CFPB has been has been really solid. Um, th- th- the thing is, even if you don't agree with me that this is something that that, that where a, a criminal investigation is important and we need to bring prosecutions here, um, you, you have to really ask yourself what's going on if if the bank's defense is true. 
the bank's defense is essentially these were a few bad apples, 5,300 bad apples right. over the course of five years. If it's really the case that people at the top of Wells Fargo or even in the middle of Wells Fargo can't figure out that there is a trend of people defrauding their customers, thousands of employees defrauding millions of customers for years at a time, if that's really happening, then maybe that bank is not not just too big to fail, but actually just too big to manage. Maybe it's the case that Wells Fargo is just at at a state where this bank no longer is functioning in an efficient or functional manner. And so what you need to do is break the bank up. That doesn't mean you fire everybody who works at the bank. It doesn't no, mean yeah, you liquidate yeah. the accounts. It means you just have seven banks where there used to be one. Right. So everybody works for a different bank now. And those different banks are maybe able to manage their their accounts well. Um, I also think it's it's important to, you know, one of the biggest investors in Wells Fargo is a guy who a lot of our listeners have heard of. His name is Warren Buffett. He's one of the richest men in the world. He runs Berkshire Hathaway. He's a you know a super billionaire. And Warren Buffett often is portrayed as sort of like one of the good billionaires. Sure, yeah, definitely. He's a guy who, you know, he's he's always in favor of higher taxes on the rich. Um, Democrats often roll him out. Obama has talked about him. He's talked about the been Buffett on the stump rule. with Hillary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He's he's not the the greedy, evil, venal guy, right? Um but if you look at his holdings, okay, he made a big investment in Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis, and he said since that he made that investment because he knew that the the federal government would bail out Goldman Sachs if if they got into trouble. Right. So he made a very profitable investment because, in large part, he believed that the federal government would, would hold the bag if if things didn't go well for him. So he was able to charge a particularly high rate on that investment when he when he bought into Goldman during the crisis. He also Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, is is the majority shareholder is, is a huge shareholder in uh, Moody's, the credit, credit rating, rating agency. agency. Yeah. Uh, these guys are. I think it's unfair when people claim that credit rating rating agencies are responsible for the crisis because everybody on Wall Street knew that this there was a giant you know fraudulent scheme going on here. It's not just the credit rating agencies who were like tricking everybody, uh, but they were a, they were a tool that were used to trick sure, everybody yeah. into thinking that incredibly risky stuff was actually super safe. He also has holdings in that he has he has he controls Clayton Homes, which is a mobile home manufacturing uh, company, and they've done all sorts of really scummy things with low income people, uh, as as investigations, uh, journalistic investigations have shown over the last few years. So, my point here is is that rich people who control really big stuff, even if they even if they mean well, even if they seem to have good public morals the way Warren Buffett does, do not have the capacity at best to manage these things in a way that actually helps the public. It's too much stuff. It's too big. Even if you give Warren Buffett the, the benefit of the doubt here, his investment in Wells Fargo, he was not able to oversee to prevent this from happening. The managers at Wells Fargo were not able to prevent this from happening. And, you know, he's, he's also operating all these other financial entities that are doing things that are that are really questionable and, and not questionable. They're just not good. Yeah. So related to this kind of culture you're describing, or let's say, just say off the tap that, you know, on the show, we've we've constantly touted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as an agency in government that's really working for people and ha- is really trying to do a good job. And uh, and I feel like they they um, they showed up in this instance. But there's one thing that they obviously weren't able to prevent. And that is the fact that Carrie Tolstat, who is the uh, executive who essentially uh, oversaw the, the this she she presided over the people who perpetrated the scam. She's walking away from from this. 
uh, and she's walking away with $125 million yep. in, in terms of golden parachute. That, to me, is also super scandalous. But there's nothing that anyone can she, really do She's been do ousted, about and, and, and she's getting a big, pay, a big severance package, essentially, to leave. Um, but look— it's not fair to just pin this all on her. Okay? Of course. Of John course Stumpf, who is the CEO of Wells Fargo, regularly makes, you know, dozens of billions of dollars a year or at least more than one dozen millions of dollars a yeah. year. Uh, you know, what's he making that money for? OK, he's, he's supposed to be getting paid that much money because he's doing such a great job managing the company. Yeah. And if he can't control middle managers and keep things like this from happening, then he's not actually managing the company. He's not actually in control. He's just a guy who happens to sit in a seat where large numbers of dollars flow. So we, I, I think it shows a general corporate governance failure with American the, – the way, the way we have come to understand American capitalism, which uh, I, I think used to be a little bit problematic versus other global capitalist sort of yeah. systems. But it's become, it's become so concentrated. There, every industry, you know, finance is not the only industry where this is happening. We have so much consolidation. In the meat industry, there's like four producers of meat in the United States. We think there are all these farmers. Okay, sure, but they're all making stuff for four different meat companies, all right? Right. This is, you know, your toothpaste. You know, there's only a couple of places that actually make toothpaste, okay? Even though you've got all these different brands in the grocery store, there's only a couple people that actually make toothpaste. This has happened in a lot of different industries, and they become so big that there's no way to adequately monitor the scope of these operations. Human beings are still human beings. Uh, and so we either need to be very serious about breaking these things up, or we need to say, okay, if you want to be responsible for these giant endeavors and make tens of millions of dollars a year, you are going to run the risk of a serious criminal prosecution. And I don't know how many people really want to be the CEO if they start seeing that they themselves can be criminally liable for the things that these companies do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, <clears throat> CEO pay, staggering and high. Golden parachutes like this one, staggeringly high. The argument for all this is like, oh, if this wasn't staggering and high, uh, we wouldn't be able to attract the talent. I keep asking, where's the fucking talent? Right. And why don't we apply that same rubric to, say, public school teachers? Look, if, if, <laughs> if a newspaper accidentally defrauded, you know, hundreds of its subscribers. Right. It would be a giant scandal and they would stop having subscribers. Right. Right. It would stop happening. You can't do that in banking because there's only so many places to go to bank. Right. Yeah. There's there. There are several banks that effectively in, in different regions control all your access to banking. So if you want to go to a bank, all right, well, maybe you've got a choice between Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Okay, who's the good guy there? You tell me. <laughs> your pillow, your mattress. All right, Zach Carter, thanks for talking uh, with us about Wells Fargo and uh, their scumminess. Uh, we'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're back. We're back now to talk about Jasta, which sounds like so much fun. Everyone say it. Jasta. Are Jasta. You a Jastafarian? Yeah, it's so yes, yeah, it sounds like fun. It sounds like a fresh new energy drink or something. Drink some Jasta, grab it. But actually, it's a very sober minded thing. It is the uh, Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. Mm. Uh, this is something that Congress has proposed, and it's wildly popular in Congress. It would change a 1976 law and allow plaintiffs to sue other nations in federal court if those nations are found to have been involved in a terrorist attack. And help you stay up later when you're drunk. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's a, You know, they hung that on the Christmas tree, too, yeah. and that might pass. But um, this obviously has put one nation in particular a little bit on the hook, Saudi Arabia, joining us to talk about this and what President Obama is going to do and what someone, what Congress is then going to do in response to President Obama. We have Zachary Carter. Hi. And we have our beloved doomsayer, Jessica Schulberg. Wow, I got a much better intro than Zach did. Mm, I get to be on this all the time. So yeah. Jason's oh, already okay. used all the good ones on me. Got it. So um, let's talk about JASTA. This is wildly popular in Congress. It it's is. It's going to end up on the president's desk. It is. President, he doesn't want any part of this. The president has already said he'll veto it. What would make this interesting is it looks like there's actually enough votes in the House and the Senate to override a presidential veto that requires two-thirds votes in both chambers, which means that you would need a lot of Democrats to buck the president. Um, we've never seen Congress get enough votes to override a veto since President Obama came to office. Um, I think one time when people thought it might have been close was on the Iran deal when Congress was hoping to scuttle the Iran deal. And Obama laid a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of pressure on Democrats to stay off of that vote. It's unclear if he would have the same uh, lobbying force on this bill. It's It's a lot more politically complicated. Yeah, and it's coming at a time just past the September 11th attack, so this is preeminent in people's mind. Um, Zach, you want to say something? Well, from, from the anniversary of the September 11th attack, to be clear. Yeah. Like that oh, was, yeah. sorry, sorry about that. That was 15 that. years like, ago. Oh, God, sorry. another one. Yeah. I, I mean, well, the, the United States has been sort of, there are members of Congress who have been really, who have openly questioned the United States' um, allegiance with Saudi Arabia. We've been allies with right. them for decades now. Um, Chris Coons is somebody, who's a, or not Chris Coons, uh, Chris, Chris Murphy. Murphy, the yeah. other Chris, yeah. the other white guy from the Northeast, uh, senator from Connecticut. There are two um, of them. Right. It's probably more than two Everyone else is named Aiden. <laughs> He's 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 openly called for for reevaluation of, of of that relationship. Um, does this bill force the administration's hand in in some sense on that, or is or is this just uh, or is this viewed as, as sort of an independent? Uh, it is moving on a different track than than the diplomatic uh, relationship more broadly. I think that this was a, a little bit different. I actually just did a quick fact check to see if Chris Murphy voted for JASTA, and it looks like he did. But I was going to say that I think that JASTA is a little bit different than some of Murphy's, uh, I think, in my opinion, more nuanced proposals for reexamining the U.S.-Saudi relationship. 
Uh, he was on our podcast talking about how we probably shouldn't be sending the Saudis uh, heavy weaponry right. to be using against Yemeni children in hospitals who are being bombed by the Saudis. Um, I think just is a little more controversial because implicit in the bill is a suggestion that Saudi Arabia is responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And while there is evidence that the uh, 9-11 hijackers in some cases had ties to officials in the Saudi government, it hasn't been proven and it would be a drastic overstatement to say that the Saudi government plotted the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And, and I think but by the logic that you know of the Afghan invasion, mm-hmm. and certainly if if we're going to hold Saddam Hussein responsible with the Iraq invasion, the connections between the Saudis and and September 11th are much stronger, right? Much stronger than Saddam Hussein. <laughs> yeah, and his non-existent yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I, God, I hope that's not, not not controversial. I hope that's not the level of which we're using <laughs> no, to yeah, assign yeah, blame yeah. for terrorist attacks. Now right. that we have yeah. moved but, past but that elevated presidency. But, but but the rationale behind, at least that was publicly stated behind the invasion of Afghanistan, was if you harbor terrorists, we're going to come after you. Right. And so the fact that there were a bunch of Saudis flying planes into our building, whether the government, you know was tied to them or not, you, mm-hmm. you can see why there would be people who would, okay, well, if this is the standard we set in Afghanistan, this is something we should be, we should be looking at more well, seriously. Well, what's interesting is there actually is a much higher precedent to holding somebody responsible in a federal court than for just bombing the shit out of their country. Um, we can argue about whether or not that is a good thing or not. But, but the idea that you could bring a, a sovereign state to, to U.S. courts for something like this is, is pretty unprecedented since that 1976 law that you're talking mm-hmm. about. And one of the biggest... Um, reasons that I think the president opposes this law isn't just because it would really, really upset the Saudis, is because the U.S., reciprocity, the U.S. is responsible for a lot of things abroad that other countries could look at and say, hey, you know, you guys are supporting what we see as a terrorist activity. You know, can we hold you responsible in our courts? And I think that's something that Obama has the foresight to see. That's that's what I wanted to ask about. Obviously, this comes at a time where also the Saudis are feeling a little bit on the outs with America because the Iran deal itself... um, they they felt like maybe more of a cleavage with us when we started trying to pass that. But the issue of sovereign immunity is exactly what Josh Ernest has brought up is right. the reason why, um, why, why they, why the Obama administration will veto this bill. My question is, is there a clear cut case for reciprocity? Um, if this bill gets passed, does does it really officially formally establish a precedent that we could be there's, sued? There's no automatic and, legal trigger there. And okay, and, and more to the point, my my question is: we, we say we some we have plaintiffs they sue Saudi Arabia in, in federal court. What kind of judgment uh, gets rendered in this court, and how do you enforce that judgment? Is this a monetary judgment? Is someone going to go to space jail over this? It, it would likely be, be monetary. I think the best precedent we've seen is there was recently a Supreme Court case about whether victims of an Iranian-sponsored terror attack um, could hold the Iranian government responsible. The Supreme Court upheld a ruling that allocated a lot of money, millions or billions, I'm spacing right now, um, to the victims, to the family members of the victims of this terror attack. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, but, but, but on the point of enforcement, I mean, yeah. the Iranians have said this is, this is outright against international law. And interestingly, um, Jack Goldsmith, who is a Bush-era lawyer, uh, he said, you know, this probably isn't completely legitimate with international law. And he wrote probably the best op-ed uh, in defense of Obama vetoing JASTA. And with the Saudis, I mean, you would, in, in this case, be sort of relying on the fact that the United States still has a diplomatic relationship with them right. f- for any of these judgments to go through. So you would have, on the one hand, the United States sending money and guns to Saudi Arabia, and then on the other t- other hand, sometimes taking some of that money back. It, it's sort of 
it's sort of a circle that doesn't necessarily make any sense. You could you could imagine the government getting around this by just the United States government getting around the actual monetary penalties by just upping what we send to Saudi Arabia. You know, one question I had for you, Zach, is the the Saudis have said um, that if this bill gets passed uh, and if it's overridden, then it gets passed. Uh, they've threatened to sell off uh, some seven hundred fifty billion million. I forget the amount. I'm uh, having wrote, trouble with that today. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote down seven hundred fifty billion dollars in yeah. in in U.S. Treasury securities and. That doesn't seem to me to be much of a threat. I mean, that seems to me that it would be something that might actually hurt Saudi Arabia economically. And then they could perhaps sue themselves in court for active economic terrorism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is sort of like it's just an economic mess. I mean, the idea that you can actually find buyers for $750 billion worth of securities, even the most liquid securities in the world, which U.S. Treasury bonds are, um, Find $750 billion is a lot of money. So being able to actually sell those off in such a way that would be damaging, you'd have to do it all at once. You'd have to sell at a really low price. And that would also affect the relationship between the U.S. dollar and Saudi Arabian currency. So it would actually end up probably being pretty bad for the Saudi Arabian um, labor market. It would be bad for the position of their currency internationally. Um, there, there would be things that it would do for Saudi Arabia that are not great. I think that's just sort of waving a flag and saying, hey, we're really angry and we will do something to retaliate against you if you do this because this is internationally insulting and humiliating, um, which I, I guess I wanted to ask you about, Jessica. Like, Even if the monet monetary stuff doesn't matter, even if this this law ends up getting overturned in the Supreme Court because it's against decades of international precedent, um, what, what it does, what, what kind of signal does it send and, and, and how meaningful is, is the sort of like intangible perception uh, that a law like this creates with, with both with Saudi Arabia and, and with the, the broader world? Oh, well, I think it shows. Uh, so after 9-11, you had a slew of Saudi lobbyists descending on Capitol Hill, um, trying to kind of mitigate the damage that was coming out of having a bunch of Saudi hijackers ram airplanes into the World Trade Centers. And they've been largely successful. I mean, Saudi Arabia's reputation over the past 15 years has improved dramatically. I think the war in Yemen was sort of one of the first things that really started to backtrack the progress that these lobbyists had made. And the 28 pages being released, which did sort of point to some connections between the Saudi government and the hijackers, was also not so good for the government. Um, but at the same time, it, it's too soon to say that members of Congress, at least, are really ready to throw their hands up in the air with the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I mean, this measure that we talked about earlier with Chris Murphy trying to block an arms sale to Saudi Arabia, very, very far from widespread bipartisan consensus on mm -hmm. that. I think we had 64 members of the House out of 365 saying that they wanted to block the arms transfer and there's four senators on a bill that would block the transfer. So I think in terms of actually having uh, a tangible change in the U.S. relationship to Saudis, which is so deeply based in providing them with weapons, we're, we're still not really there yet. Which is strange because you're also, at least the, the way you've described this, changing international law essentially to allow the United States government to sue a foreign government in U.S. courts would itself still be a really big change? It would be huge, but I think there's a bit more of a, a domestic political force at play here, obviously. I mean, the senators that you saw coming out the most in favor of this early on were people who came from New York, whose right. constituents right. are obviously very, very in favor of anything that would allow them to get money from the alleged perpetrators of those crimes. Um, you Last question. You, you talked about how uh, Obama was able to successfully apply pressure during the Iran deal to get Democrats 
back on his side and to stop bucking him. Obviously, he had to go through channels and leaders in the House and Senate. How do the leaders in the House and Senate on the Democratic side align themselves with this bill? Do they see it the president's way? I know Chuck Schumer does not. Well, the incoming majority leader, Chuck Schumer, he is one of the the fiercest advocates of JASTA. Um, Harry Reid, I think, will have less influence, even if Obama is able to get through to him because he's on his way out, right. as is Obama. So I think I think that the political pressure we saw being applied on the Iran deal is just not really going to be as powerful here. I didn't check, but what is does Hillary Clinton weigh in on this bill? I, I have not seen. I think it would be politically unwise of her, too, at the moment. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> uh, probably uh, so. Clinton and Sanders both back it. All right, well, there, there you, you go. go. Political wisdom aside, she backs the bell. All <laughs> right, well, um, drink Jasta, <laughs> stay up all night. <laughs> all right, thanks, thanks, Jessica, for okay. talking about... JASTA. Thanks, Zach, for uh, helping us to properly brand JASTA for the millennial generation. Um, And we'll be right back. And we're back. I am Zach Carter, joined, as usual, by... Jason Lincolns. And we have on the phone with us today a very special guest. Uh, so a professor, A professor of history from uh, the University of California at Davis. Uh, his name is Eric Rauschway, and he is the author of the new, new-ish book, came out at the end of last year, The Moneymakers, How Roosevelt and Keynes Ended the Depression, Defeated Fascism, and Secured a Prosperous Peace. Eric, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. It's uh, still available in finer bookstores near you, I'm sure. I, I I found it in a sort of not so fine bookstore near me, but it, the book itself was great. <laughs> it's, it's good to have your book at disreputable bookstores too. I found it's just like a good thing. Well, you want to reach all the readers. Yeah, exactly. So, Eric, you've written a lot about uh, the New Deal and, and FDR over the course of your career, um, and I think most people who at least are listening to this podcast are familiar with you know some of the major tenets of the New Deal. You know, the creation of the SEC, deposit insurance, Social Security, all of these things. Um, but but your book, uh, your your latest book, um, suggests that maybe the most radical thing he did was something totally different. Uh, what what was that? Well, it was to change the character of the United States dollar. Uh, monetary policy, a very unusual form of monetary policy, to be sure, was central to Roosevelt's uh, uh, legislative and policy agenda from his, the point of his election right through to his death. And that's what the story is about. So I think for a lot of people, when we think about the Depression, you know, we, we, we think about bread lines and people being out of work and all the rest. How did Roosevelt change the money to make people go to work? It, it, I, don't, I don't know if there's an obvious connection there for people who aren't economics dorks like yourself. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to be included as an economics dork. But uh, just, just for the sake of argument, let's, uh, let's look at the most basic uh, aspect of the situation. Remember, the, the, the principal problem in the Depression was falling prices, which is to say deflation. So uh, prices were going down, and uh, the effect of deflation and also of the expectation of deflation is to reduce economic activity. And if you take five seconds to think about that, you'll understand why that's true. What's happening with deflation, as prices go down, that means the dollar in your pocket is worth more and more as time passes. So if you have an optional purchase of any kind, you're more likely to delay it because, of course, you're going to be able to get that item cheaper next month than you will this month if you have the expectation of deflation. Uh, so as prices you know, and this is because with unemployment, uh, people who sell stuff are bidding for scarcer consumer dollars. So what do they do? They lower the price. Mm. 
And again, as this is an optional purchase, people are less more likely to defer it, and so they put it off, and then retailers will lower the price again. And uh, you, you still don't have quite as much economic activity you like. You don't have as many sales as you like, so you begin laying people off. And those are more people who are not going to be buying things, which increases the incentive to lower prices, and you get a deflationary spiral, and it's, uh, it's self-reinforcing, until and unless you can administer some kind of shock which changes people's expectations. And this is what Roosevelt does, the very first thing he does coming into office, which is to induce the expectation of inflation. And so he does this by changing the relationship between the dollar and gold. So how did the gold standard encourage deflation, and, and what did Roosevelt do to, to, to sort of take the country off the gold standard? Well, the gold standard means that you are committed to exchange your paper currency for a certain fixed amount of gold. And in practice, the way that's implemented is that you're limited in the amount of money you can issue by the amount of gold you have on hand. Um, so over the long term, even if there are no shocks to the system, the more people there are, the more stuff there is, if the amount of gold remains fixed, you're going to have deflation because it's a simple supply and demand thing. There's only right. much gold and there's more stuff. And that's as if there's no shocks. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry about that. Um, in, uh, of course, the period between World War I and the New Deal, there are a number of shocks to do with uh, international debt, to do with central banks hoarding gold, and to do with uh, an increasing scarcity of gold in circulation. So with, uh, you have this deflationary problem that as people are withdrawing money from circulation, as they're withdrawing gold from circulation, uh, money is becoming more valuable and prices are going down. And the gold standard wasn't just something that America did. This was uh, this is kind of a, a, a wider belief in the way money should be valued. And Roosevelt changed this, I think, for uh, everyone across the globe, didn't he? Yeah, well, Roosevelt, you're, you're absolutely right that this is an international gold standard, you know, with some modifications that prevailed uh, certainly since uh, World War One and, and indeed before that. And the general orthodox was that this is a good thing, that forcing central banks to limit the money supply by some arbitrary constraint like convertibility to gold, you know, will prevent inflation, and that's a good thing. Uh, which is fine as long as you're in the business of selling or renting money. If you're in the business of selling or renting any other thing, it's actually not very good for you, especially <laughs> if you're a debtor, right? Right. So, you're uh, going to get worse. Yeah. So uh, Roosevelt, you're right. Roosevelt not only takes the dollar off gold immediately on coming into office, but very shortly thereafter says that he wants to establish a new international system not based on the gold standard, that will make it easier for countries to respond to economic crises by using their monetary policy. And and these ideas were not you – know, Roosevelt was a smart guy, but he didn't come up with the stuff all by his own, all on his own. And you have another major character in your book, uh, a guy named John Maynard Keynes. How did Keynes's, how did Keynes come to these ideas, and how did he transmit them to, uh, to FDR? Well, Keynes is, uh, as you know, is a, is a towering figure in the history of 20th century economics. Um, and because we associate him with the idea of responding to a depression with fiscal stimulus, what we usually omit, uh, much as we usually omit it from the New Deal, is that the bulk of Keynes's writings are to do with monetary policy. Actually. Mm -hmm. And this comes from the very beginning of his career. Uh, his first book is about the Indian currency. 
and the way in which uh, the Indian currency was administered uh, in, the, in the waning days of uh, British colonialism, or waning years, decades of British colonialism, which was to say not according to a gold standard, and he envisioned that as being the future. And he continued to write in that vein from his first book, 1913 onwards, believing that flexibility uh, in response to crisis would be the core of a future monetary policy. But this is still a gutsy thing to do in 1932-1933, where, you know, the country's been in a terrible, terrible recession, and it's been on gold for quite some time now, to say, okay, uh, we're going to effectively force... uh, the belief that you know our money matters because our political system is is strong and good, uh, instead of because of uh, you know our sort of international credibility with this this holding of of gold. I mean that this is this is a, a a bit of a gamble on Roosevelt's part. Oh, it's a huge shift, and it's one that he uh, goes through in a very cautious uh, and advised fashion. It was one of his advisors would later say Roosevelt's genius was for babying things along. And that, that's what he does with, uh, you know, not only with the gold standard, but with many other things, including, of course, anti-fascist policies. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, he doesn't say right away, okay, today I am president and we shall go off the gold standard. Right. You know, uh, as, as a friend of mine who's managed a couple of currency devaluations uh, in, in, in modern countries says, you know, you always announce this, uh, you know, at 6 p.m. on Friday that you're going to devalue the currency. <laughs> Good idea, always. Friday news dump. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, and Roosevelt, you know, does the same thing. He said, well, we're going to suspend the trading in gold, and we'd like everyone to bring back the gold into the banks, and people begin to do that. You know, that, that's, that's accompanied by his uh, bank holiday and his sending around inspectors to certify, you know, with some kind of good housekeeping seal of approval that banks are safe, right? So people do respond favorably to that. They do bring back their money. They do bring back their gold. And once he's got almost all the gold back, he says, oh, by the way, now you can't have it anymore. You know, it's so it's um, we're going to we're going to proceed with a policy of managing the currency. But he kind of eases into that because, as you say, it's, it's a radical idea and one that he wants people to get used to. Well, I, I I wanted I wanted to ask I'm I'm sure that this um that this decision met with some resistance and even to this day there are people in some quarters who who uh, advocate bringing back the gold standard including occasional semi credible presidential candidates and whatnot <clears throat> how would you characterize the resistance to the idea were they making the same arguments then as as those who still talk about it do now. Uh, just to be clear, by semi credible, you mean Donald Trump? I mean, the current Republican candidate for, for president? I mean, the, Ted Cruz was very vocal about t- yeah, this during Ted the primary Cruz as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah Cruz, was, Cruz uh, certainly talked about it more, but Trump uh, did say that he's pro gold standard, um, you know, but in the way that he's pro lots of things, which is without copious details, right? But, uh, yeah. It's really, it's, and, and, and that a kind of thing, is, I think, is the key getting back into why people say they're in favor of it. You know, there's a, there's a rhetorical appeal <clears throat> to the gold standard that, um, you know, surpasses any kind of actual policy effect, right? When we talk about how is the dollar trading with other currencies, if it's valued more than other currencies, what do we say? We say it's a strong dollar. Right. Well, obviously, strong is better than weak, right? I mean, it's sort of, you know. Well. In, in terms of health, yeah, usually. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in the business of selling dollars, that's great. If you're in the business of selling stuff for dollars, right. 
So, um, but, but, but people just hear strong and, oh, strong good, right? And just like, um, you know, people talk about a hard currency. Well, a hard currency is obviously better than a soft currency, right? I mean, it stands to reason, especially if there's a kind of gendered component, not to say that a Trump candidacy would have any gendered kind of component. Oh, no, 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 no evidence no, no, of that no, in the yeah, campaign sure. at all. <laughs> so, so things that are strong and hard are obviously better than things that are, that are weak and soft, unless, of course, you're not using metaphors, and you're actually looking at, at what the economic effect is. Just to maybe give people an idea, because we haven't lived on the gold standard in a long time, but for ordinary people, if we were to flip a switch tomorrow and go back on the gold standard, how would that affect people's lives? I imagine it would be an enormous benefit to the plutocratic class, just like everything else is, but what it would be for like people at ground level? Well, I mean, again, it, it, it's very hard to know how this would happen. Um, sure, sure. And, 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 but, 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 I mean... Given that the effect of a gold standard should be broadly deflationary, this would be really lousy for people who have debts, which is, you know, most of us, but especially those of us who are younger. Like Donald Trump. Right. Yeah, well, you know, indeed. So, um, so, so, I mean, again, if you're thinking about the circumstances of 1933 and maybe how they might have played out in 2007-8, you know, let's say more recently, if you experience a period of deflation, <clears throat> If you're a debtor, that's terrible because you're being asked to pay back your debts in money that's more expensive than the money you borrowed, right? So I think for those of us who are carrying debts, uh, anything like that would be would be pretty awful. All right. Well, uh, Eric Rauschway, the book is called The Money Makers. It is about FDR and John Maynard Keynes. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by author and historian Eric Rauschway, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jessica Scholberg, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We want to thank all of you for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.